You wanted to see me, Miss Swinton? Have you been hearing about the new government modernization efforts? AI, RPAs, data science. Things are changing at this agency, and people will need new skills. Oh. I'd like you to get some training. Huh. Look at this management concepts catalog. Wow, over 275 courses. That's right, in local classrooms or instructor-led online classes. We still have budget in this fiscal year, so sign up online. Advance your career with courses from Management Concepts. Get a catalog at managementconcepts.com or call 833-578-8466. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners, so please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my but I'm walking with the dead. This week, we're covering a case out of Italy from 2010. With that in mind, there wasn't a plethora of English-based material that we could find. We got really lucky, though, because one of the English-based materials that we found was extremely well-written and very comprehensive in its telling of the case. That is an article by Tobias Jones for The Guardian. Because this article was so well-written and so comprehensive in its storytelling of this case, we decided why not reach out and ask if we can share it on this episode of The Murder Diaries. So we did. We reached out to Tobias Jones and asked him if we could do just that read it on an episode. And he said yes. So we're really excited to share this article with you today. We'll be including our normal anecdotes, of course, but primarily we're going to be reading this article by Tobias. It is linked in the show notes if you want to check it out. We have also linked a YouTube video that uses this article as source material, but also includes visual aids like pictures and things like that. That said, let's get into it. On November 26, 2010, Yar Gambarasio, 13, born May 21, 1997, went missing. Three months later, her body was discovered in scrubland nearby. So began one of the most complex murder investigations in Italian history. Yara Gambarasio should have only been gone a short while. On Friday, November 26th, 2010, at 5.15 p.m., she left home to go to the gym. Just a few hundred meters from her home, Yara, who was 13 and wore train track braces, was preparing for her rhythmic gymnastics display the following Sunday. All she needed to do was drop off a stereo with her instructor. She said goodbye to her family, who knew where she was going, and left the house. By 7 p.m., Yara had still not come home, and her parents were becoming increasingly anxious. The town where they lived, Brambate di Sopra, was a sedate place on the so-called Bergamasque Island between the rivers Brembo and Ada, an hour north of Milan and just south of the Bergamo Alps. It was a population of 8,000. From its quiet streets lined with poplars and cypresses, you can see the wooded mountains in the distance. 
the peaks turning blue-gray. At 7.11, Yara's mom phoned her daughter, but the call went straight to voicemail. 20 minutes later, Yara's father called the police. So the parents were on top of it as soon as they realized that Yara had not come home. And they're getting worried by this point. Yeah, I would have to say that's probably any parent's worst nightmare to call their child after they haven't seen them for hours and for that call to go to voicemail. Especially when they're a little 13-year-old girl. Can't imagine the things going through their mind at this time. So the father's calling the police. The call was put through to the public prosecutor's office in the center of the provincial capital, Bergamo. It's a city 11 kilometers east of Brambate de Sopra. The magistrate on duty was Leticia Ruggeri, a tough former policewoman who had earned her stripes fighting Cosa Nostra in Sicily. She had been a magistrate for almost 15 years and knew what needed to be done. Within minutes, she had dispatched both state police officers and Carabinieri military police to Brambate de Sopra. Yara's gym instructor confirmed that she had seen Yara earlier that day and that she had done some light training before heading off. The police quickly established the last known contact with Yara was a text message that she had sent to a friend, Martina, at 6.44 p.m., agreeing to meet at 8 a.m. the following Sunday. I just want to interject before you keep going with the story. It's pretty telling that at 6.44, she's communicating with her friend. And then at 7.11, you know, maybe 16 minutes later, she's not answering her call. So I feel like that 16-minute time frame is a huge deal. You're right. It's a relatively short amount of time, but it's extremely important in this case. Back to Yara and Martinez texting. The texting was agreeing to meet at 8 a.m. the following Sunday. That was the last anyone had heard from her. The gym, where Yara had gone that evening, was part of a large sports complex, a garish building with many entrances and exits. Besides the large sports hall, there was a running track, a swimming pool, and various courts. A few people said they had seen two men, possibly in conversation with Yara, standing near a red car. But there was little more to go on than that. Leticia Ruggeri called in tracker dogs, a breed of bloodhound, Sugio Italiano, with short, brown, and black hair, long ears, doleful eyes, and a keen sense of smell. You all know I googled this dog immediately, and they're really cute. The article that I linked in the show notes for The Guardian that we're reading right now has a link um, that you can click when it says Sukiyo Italiano to see the dog. But that's just because Natalie and I are dog lovers. So fellow dog lovers, click the link in the article and you'll see a cute picture of these dogs. Back to the article. Instead of following the expected route back to Yara's home in Via Rampanelli, Ruggeri's dogs went in the opposite direction towards a small hamlet nearby called Mapello. When the team analyzed the last signals from Yara's mobile phone, the result showed that it had been registered as present in Mapello at 6.49 that evening. Everything seemed to point away from Yara's family, but investigations of this type always start at home. Over the next few days, Ruggeri and her team questioned every member of the Gambarasio family, looking for signs of discord or dark secrets. Yara's parents were well-known and respected. Her father, Fulvio, was a large, solid man with thick glasses, an architect whose father had been the local postman, like his mother before him. 
So you got to think this is a small Italian village where family legacy like this means something. It carries weight, your family history. Mora, Fulvio's wife, was a teacher in Longuelo, a nearby town. The marriage appeared strong. They had four children. Yara had an older sister, Kiba, who was 15, and two younger brothers, Natan and Giole, both under 10. Ruggeri put wiretaps on hundreds of phones. Her team also tried to trace the owners of all the handsets, some 15,000, which had passed through Mapello on the day of Yara's disappearance. One of these belonged to a Moroccan man named Mohamed Fikri. In one wiretap conversation in late November, the interpreter heard the phrase, forgive me, God, I didn't kill her. Fikri had been working in a builder's yard in Mapello, but by the time investigators had put the pieces together a few days later, he was on a boat bound for Tangiers. On December 4th, Italian authorities intercepted the vessel and arrested Fikri. They searched the van that he'd been using and discovered that it contained a blood-stained mattress. Quote, people liked him as the guilty party, end quote, Ruggeri told me ruefully last year, because he was foreign, but Fikri was quickly cleared. The phrase had been mistranslated, and the blood was extraneous to the investigation. As autumn slipped into winter, Brambate de Sopra found itself at the center of a mystery, which had captured the country's imagination. Italian TV is dominated by Nere crime news. And now, national camera crews descended. The Gambriasio family were horrified by the sudden glare of publicity. TV cameras became a permanent fixture in their quiet cul-de-sac. The family locked themselves away, lowering their shutters and even turning down the idea of a torchlight procession to raise awareness. Instead, nuns from the Ursuline Order, who had taught at Yara's school, came to pray with Mora. A mass was held instead of the procession, and the rare statements from the parents were devout pleas for privacy and patience. And now, let's take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. You wanted to see me, Miss Swinton? Have you been hearing about the new government modernization efforts? AI, RPAs, data science. Things are changing at this agency, and people will need new skills. Oh. I'd like you to get some training. Huh. Look at this management concepts catalog. Wow, over 275 courses. That's right, in local classrooms or instructor-led online classes. We still have budget in this fiscal year, so sign up online. Advance your career with courses from Management Concepts. Get a catalog at managementconcepts.com or call 833-578-8466. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospa's hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. The reticence of the Gambriasio family reflected the culture of this region. The province of Bergamo is much closer to Switzerland than Naples, and the Bergamaschi are generally more reserved than their southern countrymen. Quote, it's in the spirit of mountain people to disdain gossip and not to repeat nonsense, end quote, from Piero Bonicelli, the editor of Arabarara, a colorful local newspaper. Piero goes on to say, if I don't know something, if I've only heard it said, I don't say anything until I'm certain it's true, end quote. Desperate, 
to discover the whereabouts of their daughter. The Gambriasio family did share some photos of Yara with the press in the days after her disappearance. Yara in line to take communion, doing the splits at the gym, a studio photo of her in a yellow top, Yara in an Italian football shirt, Yara on the beach. But no one came forward with any useful information. When her parents finally made a televised appeal a few days after their first Christmas without Yara, they looked awkward. Mora was so uncomfortable, she was unintentionally rolling her eyes. Fulvio, who wore a rugby shirt, hesitantly read a plea, help us return to normality. He explained that the family values were love, respect, and honesty, and that they would be giving no interviews. In response to that description of Yara's family, her parents in particular, I think it's important for us to remember that this is a different culture than at least you and I, Paige, are used to. You know, these actions can mean different things in the Italian culture. And from everything that you and Tobias have said about the family, it's clear that they're very uncomfortable with the amount of attention that they're getting, but they knew that they had to step out of their comfort zone to do this for their daughter. And so I don't think any of our listeners should hold that against them when hearing this description of the parents. Very well said. This wariness towards outsiders owes much to the region's history. Bergamo is still called in local dialect Berkem, an old name which means the town of the mountain. The city has always been a strategically important citadel, one of the last rebouts before the flat, fertile basin of the River Po. The Bergamaschi are used to seeing off invasions. Just a few miles west of Brambate di Sopra is a town called Pontida, where in 1167, the Lombard League, the alliance of northern Italian cities which joined together to resist the German Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick I, was formed. The Oath of the Pontida still exerts a symbolic power today. It's frequently evoked by the separatists of the Northern League to rally sentiment against outsiders, against the perceived indolence and corruption of Southern Italy, or more commonly now, against immigrants from developing nations. This setting was part of what fascinated the Italian public about Yara's disappearance. The province of Bergamo seemed to represent two different sides of the country, where lower Bergamo towards the plains is fashionable, well-connected, and industrialized. Alpine Bergamo is agricultural, remote, and deeply traditional, a close-knit place which nurtures suspicion, even superstition. Some locals talk, without irony, of this being a land of strege, of witches, who steal or poison young children. This reminds me so much of the Salem Witch Trials, which was very similar. It was split into two. The area of Salem had an area that was much more bustling and city-oriented, and then you had the more rural, up-and-away part that was much more superstitious, and in this case, also against witchcraft, right? So that's just one of the ways that I'm kind of connecting and trying to gather an understanding of what they're trying to express here when it comes to Bergamo. On the afternoon of February 26th, 2011, exactly three months after Yara disappeared, a middle-aged man named Ilario Scotti was flying his radio-controlled plane 
in the small town of Quiñolo de Isla, 10 kilometers south of Brimbate de Sopra. Quiñolo is surrounded by industrial estates, and the scrubland by Via de Besqui seemed like a safe, unpopulated space for Scotti to try out his new model aircraft. The model airplane wasn't functioning as Scotti wanted, though he had brought it down to the earth amid the tall weeds. As he picked up his plane, he caught sight of some rags on the ground nearby. At first, he thought someone had been fly-tipping. For listeners, fly-tipping is a slang for littering. Then Scotti saw the shoes. Rugeri was coming back from a day's skiing with her daughter when she got the call that a body had been found. So essentially here, we're finding out in this article that Scotti had found a body. And now Rugeri, who had been searching for Yara, is getting this phone call. She dropped her daughter at home and went straight to the crime scene. The body was in an advanced state of decomposition, but Rugeri could see the black bomber jacket with its elasticated waist, which Yara had been wearing when she left home in November. There, too, was her Hello Kitty sweatshirt. Crime scene investigators found Yara's iPod and house keys, as well as the SIM card and battery for her LG phone. The phone itself was missing. Quote, it was a relief, end quote, Rugeri told Tobias later. Yara's disappearance had really disturbed me. I'm a mother too. And the only thing worse than the death of a child is the disappearance of a child. The autopsy was conducted by Italy's most famous forensic pathologist, Professor Cristina Cataneo. She discovered traces of lime in Yara's respiratory passages and the presence of jute, a vegetable fiber used to make rope on her clothing. Yara hadn't been sexually assaulted, although her purple bra was unhooked. She had suffered multiple injuries from a sharp weapon that had pierced her clothing at various points. It seemed that she had been attacked and abandoned. She had died of exposure. The presence of lime and jute suggested the killer might be in the building trade. The forensics team retrieved two DNA samples, one from Yara's phone battery and the other from two fingers of her black gloves, but neither matched any samples the authorities had on record. Two months later, in April, the commander of the Scientific Investigations Department in Parma phoned Ruggeri. I've got good news, he told her. This murder has a signature. We found male DNA on the underwear of the deceased. It was likely that the murderer had himself been wounded in the struggle, leaving DNA on the girl's underwear. Ruggeri and her team named the murderer suspect Ignoto One, Unknown One. Now the hunt for Yara's killer could begin in earnest. As with all the cases that we cover, it's always troubling to hear that the victim fought back. But just to imagine her wearing her Hello Kitty sweatshirt and fighting back possibly a grown man just hurts my heart and... It's so sad that we're telling this story. You know what I mean? We shouldn't have to tell any of these stories, but the fact that a young girl was chosen and attacked, it just is awful. It's so awful. But what we can take solace in is that with this struggle and because of this struggle, we now have DNA. So now we're at the part in this article where now that we have the DNA, the hunt to find Yara's killer and match this DNA to the perpetrator is on. 
And now a word from today's sponsors. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. The workload was huge, and Ruggeri divided up the duties. The police were responsible for taking DNA samples from family members, from school friends, and people at the gym. The Carabinieri concentrated on the phone records, cross-referencing all the mobile phones that had moved from Bermbate de Sopra to Quignolo de Isla on November 26, 2010. Each phone user whose number appeared in both cells was tracked down and asked for a DNA sample. What I'm interpreting that they're doing here is that the Carabinieri is looking at the phone records of Yara and looking at the cell towers that ping in Brimbate de Sopra and Quignola. So with that, they're looking at these numbers, connecting it to the people and getting DNA samples. You can imagine that this was slow and laborious work. It took geneticists in Parma Pavia and Rome a minimum of six hours to transform just a few samples of DNA into something that could be read and compared on a computer screen. The cost in machinery and manpower was immense, and the investigation would go on to become one of the most expensive manhunts in Italian history. Yara's funeral took place on a hot morning in late May 2011. Onlookers applauded the white coffin, which was topped with a huge bouquet of white flowers. As the hearse slowly drove towards her gym, the ceremony took place in the sports hall where she had spent so many hours training and where she had last been seen alive. Outside, a large crowd watched the funeral on a giant screen and heard the condolences of Giorgio Napolitano, the President of the Republic. By the time of the funeral, investigators had taken thousands of DNA samples, but they still had no leads. Close to the scrubland where Yara's body had been found was a nightclub called Sabi Mobili, quicksand. Ruggeri knew that murderers tend to leave bodies in areas with which they're very familiar. So although it seemed like a long shot, in spring 2011, investigators started taking DNA samples outside the club on busy Fridays and Saturdays. This approach to get DNA samples outside of the club when it's busy is genius. Because if we break down a lot of the cases that even we've covered, a lot of times the bodies were left in areas that the murderer was familiar with. Not that we are the only examples or that our cases are the only examples to compare to. And they all have their differences. But I just felt like this was so smart considering what we have personally experienced in researching the cases we've covered. Sabi Mobili had a reputation for violence. A young man from the Dominican Republic had been murdered outside its doors on January 16th, 2011. But the club had helpful records. Clubbers required a membership card to get in. And so the authorities could easily track down anyone who went there regularly. Again, another point to why this was such a great idea. Ruggeri finally got a break. One of the samples from Sabi Mobili seemed strikingly similar to the suspect in Yota 1. The man who gave the sample was called Damiano Ganignoni. He was quickly excluded as a suspect. He had been in South America on the day of Yara's disappearance. But 
geneticists were convinced he was a close relative of the murderer. We were all very excited, Ruggieri told me. We said, bingo, just a couple more days and we'll have the murderer. As Ruggieri had her team put together the jigsaw of Garagnoni's family, they made an astonishing discovery. Damiano Guignari's mother, Aurora Zani, had worked for 10 years as a domestic help in the Gambirasio home. She lived nearby and had gone to Yara's home twice a week throughout the young girl's childhood. Ruggieri resigned herself to the fact that it was just a coincidence. You couldn't make it up. This whole case is crazy, she's quoted as saying. Zani was a middle-aged woman who was very attached to her employers. She recalled how Yara would always ask to watch her latest gymnastics move, and Zani would tell her to be careful and to not hurt herself, almost in like a nannying respect if you really think about it. In 2011, she was no longer working for the family, but said her relationship with Yara's parents was excellent. To find herself at the center of the investigation into Yara's murder was, Zani said later, the worst thing that could happen to me. Obviously, Ruggeri says, we intercepted Damiano, Garagnoni, and Aurora Zani's calls. We had them followed, grilled them, and she goes on to use some pretty intense and strong words saying that they tortured them in the sense that we pressed them. It was only months after of close surveillance that Ruggeri in the summer of 2011 resigned herself to the fact that it was just a crazy coincidence. There was no connection. Having seemed so close to resolution, Ruggeri's team reluctantly discarded the angle of Zani being responsible. The only promising lead that they had was the fact that Damiano Garagnoni's DNA was so similar to that of Ignoto 1. A year on from Yara's murder, Ruggeri's team was now under intense pressure to find the killer. Thousands of people were being DNA tested, and some locals who hadn't been approached for a sample suggested to the press that the investigation was haphazard. Politicians made personal attacks on Ruggeri. One Northern League politician, Daniele Bellotti, publicly decreed her incompetence, writing in an open letter in January 2012 to the Minister of Justice asking for her to be replaced by someone of, quote, proven experience end quote. Ruggieri filed a lawsuit against Bellotti for libel on April 20th, 2012, taking particular objection to his characterization of her as a person of low technical and moral profile. Behind these criticisms of Ruggieri was a strong undercurrent of sexism. What hope was there that this woman could solve such a complex crime? She was unconventional, a single mother with long salt and pepper hair and five earrings in her left ear. She played classical guitar, rode to work on an old Vespa, and had a black belt in karate. I'm going to add here for me that I think she's badass. And I think it's important for all of us, Paige and myself and our listeners, to remember that these aren't our words. These are the words that are from the article, and they're reflective of what the community felt at the time or a portion of the community felt at the time. Ruggeri felt that she was also being targeted because she had decided to drop the case against the Moroccan laborer, Mohamed Fikri, that we mentioned earlier. She says, Many people thought I had made the wrong decision, and they held it against me. The criticism was ferocious. I found it very tough. 
Ruggieri decided to concentrate on the only promising lead she had, the Garagnoni DNA. Her team spent months recreating the Garagnoni family tree. When the author of this article, Tobias Jones, visited her office in 2014, Ruggieri pulled out a folder and showed him hundreds of names, each one annotated, dates of birth, places of birth, relationships with the family. The investigators had worked out a complete genealogical tree as far back as 1815, with other branches of the family tree going back as far as 1716. And I will say for many reasons, this is very difficult to do in Italy. And it's important for us to remember that using genetic genealogy as a resource to solve a crime was really in its infancy at this time. Paul Holes hadn't even done it with the Golden State Killer yet. So this is really amazing that Ruggieri was able to do this with her team. And now let's take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. The roots of that family tree were in the small village of Gorno. It's only a 45-minute drive north to Bergamo itself up the narrow Seriana Valley, but it feels like another world. You arrive through a series of hairpin bins into a village that smells of wood smoke and chickens. In the distance, you hear the sound of waterfalls and cowbells. The village is full of narrow flights of steps. The only horizontal patch of land is a sandy, five-a-side football pitch. Although only 1,600 people live in Gorno, and it seems like a quiet, pious place, according to one former parish, the village is a, quote, bit too hot in every sense. Let's say they're a bit promiscuous, end quote. In 2011, two people in Gorno were murdered in unrelated incidents. So Nally and I, and listeners in the U.S., this may not be so defining of one place, two murders, because in the U.S. we have, unfortunately, such a high rate of murder. But in a place like this, that is a defining moment. That is a, it almost seems to become part of the town's history in a way that we don't often see here for those of us, again, that are using the context of the U.S. as our experience. So a little bit more about Gorno. The same families have been there for centuries. And on the village's war memorial outside the small church, the names of Benedetto and Pietro Garagnoni are carved into the stone. So there's that last name again, Garagnoni. The Garagnoni family were nicknamed Ifanti, the infantry, considered by everybody to be loyal, strong, and even hot-headed. Damiano Garagnoni's father had a brother, Giuseppe, who had died in 1999. Investigators visited Giuseppe's widow in September 2011 and found two stamps he had licked, one in order to validate his driving license and another on a postcard he had sent to his family. When DNA results came back from that sample, they had another breakthrough. Geneticists were convinced that Giuseppe Garagnoni was the father of Ignoto I the suspected murderer. That's incredible that they were able to gather that amount of information from a licked stamp. It is, but it's still keeping us on this circle outside of Ignoto 1. Mm -hmm. And they're just working their butts off to find out who Ignoto 1 is. Now that they had this DNA sample, 
of who they believed to be Ignoto One's father, Ruggeri's team quickly built up a picture of Giuseppe Garagnoni and his family. Giuseppe himself, a thick-set man with a rugged face, had been a bus driver who played the accordion at village festivals. His marriage to Laura Poli had seemed conventional. They had three children, a girl and two boys. Laura had become a Jehovah's Witness, and after her husband's death had moved to a nearby town, Crusone. Since Ignoto I was male, investigators concentrated on the sons, Pier Paolo and Diego. Neither provided a perfect match with Ignoto I, however, and neither of them had children. If Ignoto I really was the son of late Giuseppe Garagnoni, the only explanation was that somewhere out there was his illegitimate child. It became, Ruggeri said, an investigation within an investigation. This is a huge moment in the case. What they've uncovered here is a family secret involving infidelity. And on top of that, it sounds like it's a secret that Giuseppe took to his grave. Right. And now investigators are trying to put together the pieces of this secret. As the article puts it, Ruggeri was now hunting a woman, presumably in middle to old age, who 30 or 40 years ago had had an affair with a married man, now long dead, and given birth to a boy who went on to murder Yara Gambirasio. Some Italian journalists spoke of the, quote, pig-headedness of the Bergamo Alps, a caricature which only served to antagonize the already defensive locals. The people here, says Bonicelli, the editor of that local newspaper we mentioned earlier, were irritated by the stereotype of Highlanders closed in on themselves. The word omerta was even used, which implies the silence of Sicily and the mafia. It was deeply offensive. There was incomprehension on both sides. The investigation was, by Italian standards, unusually secretive. Locals couldn't understand why police hunting the murderer of a 13-year-old girl were taking DNA samples of elderly women. Remember, they're trying to find this woman who would be the mother of the DNA profile they have. Bonicelli says the investigation was lacking the traditional human element, the sort of person who goes into a bar in the village and puts someone at ease so that something slips out. Locals felt there was something cold about this investigation with its invasive demands for DNA samples, and it was changing the atmosphere in these so small communities. People thought, says Bonicelli, quote, that the murderer was here amongst us. So there was a sort of, not panic, but fear. End quote. Investigators knew that from the early 1960s onwards, for two weeks every May, Giuseppe Garagnoni used to go to a spa resort called Salice Terme, south of Milan, with his wife. Throughout the spring of 2012, Ruggeri's team scoured records and registers tracking all the women who had stayed at this resort at the same time of year as Garagnoni. They searched orphanages and women's shelters. They tested single mothers and women who had left the mountains for Lower Bergamo. They came up empty-handed. The woman they were looking for, they realized, was probably neither single nor, quote, fallen, end quote, at a woman's shelter, but hidden behind the walls of a marriage. Divorce was only legalized in Italy in 1970. Until that time, many couples had stayed together despite infidelities. By the time Ruggeri was searching for Ignoto One's mother, 
Yara's parents had hired their own expert, a freelance geneticist, in order to review the investigation and explain it to them. For almost a year, Giorgio Portera lobbied for the exhumation of Giuseppe Garagnoni's body from the cemetery in Gorno. He was concerned that investigators had only been able to compare 13 short tandem repeat regions, which are sequences of DNA, with the DNA of Ignoto 1. Confirmation of paternity demands that at least 15 of these regions be compared. So early on March 7, 2013, Workman chiseled into Garagnoni's loculo, the horizontal slot in a cemetery wall where his coffin was kept, and they removed his remains. They were transferred by Carabinieri to Papa Giovanni XXIII Hospital in Bergamo for examination before being returned to Gorno just a few hours later. A couple of camera crews and a few bewildered villagers watched. When DNA was extracted from his remains, 29 STR DNA regions could be compared. It was now absolutely certain that Garagnoni was the father of Ignoto I. As the investigation dragged on through 2013, the public slowly became aware of why a woman was being sought. So they're figuring out, oh, they're looking for another woman that Garagnoni may have had a child with. It became common knowledge that the late Giuseppe Garagnoni had had a lover and that she was thought to be the mother of the murderer. And the article goes on to explain that one journalist talks about how in the area, despite the disapproval of gossip, they're sort of starting to engage in it. They go on to say that they could have started a gossip magazine. It was like an open sewer. We were receiving anonymous letters, stories, people telling us about backgrounds, at cuckolds, a society which had always prided itself on its sense of loyalty and traditional Catholicism suddenly discovered the betrayals in its midst. Perhaps the point is this, Bonicelli wrote in an editorial, we don't know each other anymore. So you can really see this is shaking up the area. They're gossiping when it really was something that they did not engage in before. And they're finding out that there were secrets in this town. Until this point, the investigation had been characterized by cutting-edge scientific analysis, but it was an old-fashioned detective who broke open the case. Marshal Giovanni Mocherino was Bulgari's right-hand man, working in the office next to hers. His desk is covered in hundreds of scraps of papers, scrawled with names and numbers in different colored inks. Mocherino has bushy gray hair and black-rimmed glasses and speaks in a lighthearted, informal manner. But he's also, by his own admission, a capotosta, a stubborn man. I get effed off when I can't solve a case, he told Tobias. Because of this case, he said... I haven't had a holiday in four years. Although Mocherino was born in the South near Naples, he had lived in the Bergamo Alps area since 1983, and he'd come to know the region well. He was always talking with local people and sensitized, as he said, thousands to the case. He reminded them that amid all the gossip about infidelities that had been sparked off by the hunt for Garagnoni's lover, a young girl had been killed. By 2013, he knew everything about Garagnoni's life. Born in Gorno, Garagnoni had moved in the mid-1960s to Ponte Selva, a nearby settlement which had grown up around the bridge over the Serio River. He drove a public bus for the Motolini. In the 1960s and 70s, he would have driven plenty of young women to and from jobs in the various textile factories. Mocherino 
questioned Garagnoni's fellow bus drivers, one of whom had already gone to the press in March 2013 by saying that Garagnoni had confessed to having got a young woman, quote, in trouble, end quote. Another former colleague described Garagnoni as, quote, a man with a capital M, end quote, implying that he was a womanizer. But it wasn't until June 2014 that one of Mocherino's sources finally gave him the name he was looking for. Mocherino has always protected his sources and refuses to confirm who first whispered the name of the mysterious woman to him. But however it came about, the investigators had the final piece of the jigsaw. Esther Arsufi. Arsufi had been a neighbor of Garagnoni's in Ponte Selva in the late 1960s. In 1966, at age 19, she had married Gianni Bassetti. Bassetti was a man whose tough life had turned him inwards. He was orphaned young and suffered from a couple of ailments, um, including depression. Arsufi seemed different. An outgoing, good-looking woman. She had worn short skirts, dyed her hair. She got a job at the textile factory a few miles away in Villa Doña and took the bus every day. Ruggeri's team immediately cross-checked the DNA samples they had and discovered that Arsufi had already been tested in July 2012. They double-checked and realized that a basic error had been made by a geneticist in Rome. Arsufi's DNA had been compared not to Inyoto 1, but to Yara's. Now investigators hurriedly reran the test and discovered that Arsufi was indeed the woman they had spent so long looking for. She was the mother of Inyoto one. I'm stunned at an additional two years Yara's family had to wait to find out who this murderer was. I, I can't believe this happened. It's such a good thing that they realized the error and that they found her. Arsufi had left Ponte Selva in 1970, but she had continued her affair with Garagnoni, and in the autumn of 1970, she gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl. The boy was called Massimo Bossetti. His middle name was Giuseppe, like his biological father. So Massimo was a slim boy who loved to party. He was nicknamed the animal by his friends. He was now 42, a builder. Remember earlier, we mentioned that they wondered about the jute, right? And that he may be in the building trade and the lime. He was married with three children and living in Mapello, the hamlet near Yara's hometown, where the last signal from Yara's phone had been recorded on November 26, 2010. He was short with piercing blue eyes and had a peroxided pencil goatee. So basically, Tobias is saying that he's bleaching his goatee, or that it looks like he did at least. Ruggeri moved fast. On the 15th of June, 2014, she set up a fake roadblock, breathalyzing drivers. When her police officers stopped Massimo Bassetti, they pretended the machine hadn't worked the first time, so they could get two good samples. His DNA was immediately sent for overnight tests, and results showed it was an exact match with Ignoto 1. Ruggeri wanted to observe Bassetti before arresting him, to study his movements and behavior from a distance— but she was also worried that the news would get out and that he might leave town. On June 16th, Bossetti was arrested and charged with the murder of Yara Gambarasio. The Italian Home Secretary himself released a statement announcing his arrest. Reaction in the mountains of Bergamo, center of the investigation, was relief. The murder suspect 
was from Lower Bergamo. The suspect's internet history was troubling, using search words which implied a compulsion for pubescent girls. Essentially, they're describing that Bassetti had pedophilic behavior tendencies. And this is a father of three. Investigators discovered plenty of circumstantial evidence. Bassetti had frequently hung around Yara's house. He parked his car in Via Donsala, behind the gym, and ate at the Toscanaccia Pizzeria at the end of her road. He'd gone for regular UV showers at the tanning shop nearby. So essentially, they're describing here that he used to go fake and bake, if you will, and use a tanning salon. To me, it just sounds like he's looking for any excuse to be in close proximity to her. And it's terrifying. And it makes me wonder, as a a listener, how long he had been watching her. It's troubling, especially his propensity towards some pedophilic behavior and those searches we were just talking about. More pertinently, records suggested that Bossetti's phone had been present in Brambate de Sopra on the evening of Yara's disappearance, but had been switched off from 5.45 p.m. until the following morning at 7.34 a.m. And I feel like when you think about phones tracking you when they're on, right? It's interesting that in this case, clearly he may have been trying to avoid being tracked by turning the phone off, but it just still incriminated the same way as if it had been on, right? Because you're assuming, well, your phone was off. Could they place him because of that? Unfortunately, not after 5.45 p.m., but it's still a very big point of question as to why was your phone off from 5.45 to 7.34 then? Especially if he isn't in the habit of turning his phone off ever. This raises red flags. On Ruggeri's side, Bussetti's arrest was a reward for almost four years of dogged investigative work. After enduring a barrage of criticism for alleged incompetence, she was now fated for her brilliance. Bassetti maintains his innocence, and his lawyers are planning to contest the DNA evidence, claiming that the DNA merely indicates presence, not responsibility. Meanwhile, three families are dealing with the devastation of the case. Garagnoni's widow has been forced to come to terms with her husband's infidelity and the existence of his other children. Just as he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, Giovanni Bassetti, under the national spotlight, learned at the same time as the rest of the country that none of his three children are his. Leaks from the investigation revealed that Esther Arsufi's third child, Fabio, also had a different father. The marriage of the accused, Massimo Bassetti, had also come under strain. Since his defense sought to portray him as a family man, two people have come forward to claim that they had affairs with his wife. Since his arrest, his twin sister, herself coming to terms with both her brother's fate and the fact that the man she thought was her father is not biologically related to her, has twice been assaulted in part of her association with him as his twin. Her mother, Esther Arsufi, still denies that she's ever been unfaithful to her husband. The Gambarasio family, meanwhile, has remained private. Yara's mom, Mora, created a gymnastics award and has presented it in Yara's honor. Yara is now buried between her paternal grandparents in a cemetery just across the road from her gym. It's called Cimitero di Brambate di Sopra in Brambate di Sopra, where she was from. 
There's no date on her tombstone, only a signature next to a photograph of her wearing a white headband. All around the grave are memories left by her friends, gym shoes, a metal tulip, rag dolls, plastic angels, and little bracelets. Often in the early evening, you see Yara's father, Fulvio, standing there, gazing at the resting place of his parents and his daughter. That's where our main article by Tobias Jones for The Guardian ends. It was written in 2015. So the story has gone on a few years since then. On July 1st, 2016, the Corte di Assisi of Bergamo sentenced Bossetti to life imprisonment. The decision was appealed by Bossetti's defense, but in July 2017, the Corte di Assisi di Appello di Brescia held the guilty verdict by denying the appeal. On October 12th, 2018, the Court of Cassation confirmed Bossetti's life sentence. In November of 2019, Bossetti's defense lawyers asked for a review of the trial due to concerns about the DNA evidence. In June of 2021, that request was ultimately denied. And that's where we are for today. This is where we'll leave the episode for this week. Until our next episode, you know where to find us. At the Murder Diaries pod on Instagram or TikTok. At the Murder Diaries podcast.com and the Murder Diaries pod at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.